0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Roar Vines Radio. I'm your host, Bill DeFilippo. I highly recommend you stop listening right now, and I am joined by my co-host, Nick Polak. Nick, what's going on?
1: I have had better Mondays, and I will apologize off the top if my voice is slightly more difficult to understand uh, because I was at Penn State this weekend, but I did not lose my voice from the game. I I think I barely spoke during the game. I lost my voice singing in Backstreet Boys later that night at the... Whatever it is now that used to be Dark Horse. I think it's called, like, Jacks or something.
0: I, I, I don't remember. Uh, my last time I was in State College, the only bar that I went to was I had one beer at, at Zombie Skeller. But not uh, a that, that, – yeah, that, that was quite nice. Looks very different. And I didn't realize Liberty closed. It's disappointing. It closed?! It sure looked closed. Oh, my God. No, 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 no. Well, well I will be – that is the most disappointed I've been about something related to Penn State in about 10 minutes. That is terrible. I, uh, really want, I
1: really wanted to relive a normal Thursday night from my time at school, and I wanted to go to the saloon, and then I wanted to go to college pizza after. I got my college pizza, but the saloon, I guess, is, does not currently have enough employees to be able to be open, or at least for that weekend. So I didn't get to do that either. Just disappointment all around
0: oh god uh, i'm I'm so hung up on liberty i'm going to be um uh, i'm going to be i, I cannot into...
1: confirm nor deny that but it very much did not look currently functioning
0: oof well listen that's that that is that is for another podcast uh Nick before we get into anything else just like how was it being there before we start diving into just our thoughts on the game itself? How was it just being there? What was the vibe? Was there a moment, was there uh, a sequence of moments where you started to feel a sense of anxiety popping up in the stadium? Or uh, was it one of those things where, you know, people look up in the fourth quarter and they go, oh, Jesus, no, this is terrible? I'd say, I'd say pretty
1: much when Illinois kicked the field goal to tie it. Uh, 10. I think that was kind of the moment that the stadium as a whole was kind of like, what? <laughs> like before that, I, it, it, to me, it kind of generally seemed like there was still a sense of like, yeah, this is ugly, but you know, it, it, will probably be still be fine in the end. Um, I think, I think the field goal that tied it was kind of it because I, I think everyone in the stadium was very well aware that Illinois was pretty much able to run the ball at will. So I think there was just this kind of just group sense that like okay you know as as if they're gonna run the ball, like as long as we're ahead fine like as long as we can keep keep ahead by a score we'll be okay but if they tie things up then things might get dicey here and that that was that was I think the moment um, it was it was a really really weird day honestly I'm glad I was there like that is the weirdest football game that I think. I will ever see. And I, it's at least a
0: unique experience. To see. I, I hope it's the weirdest football game you ever see. Good <laughs> Lord.
1: Uh, you're forgetting I'm a Seattle Seahawks fan and they
0: literally don't yes, play sir. normal football games. So okay, th- thank you, Kevin. Uh, yeah, yeah, if I remember correctly, that field goal came at the end of that one, like just absolutely bonkers drive where Illinois kept committing penalties and Penn state kept committing penalties. And it just kind of felt like everyone was like, eh, hell, whatever. So like, I, I can't even imagine, but, uh, obviously, uh, We've danced around saying the final score of the game long enough. As we know, Illinois 20, Penn State 18, final in nine overtimes on homecoming in Beaver Stadium. Penn State falls to five and two on the season. Two and two in conference play, second loss in a row after the Nittany Lions lost to Iowa last, not last week, two weeks ago. Uh, And, you know, it looks like that's going to be uh, a middle of a three game losing streak considering what is around the corner this weekend. So, Nick, let's just start before we go into Penn State's offense, Penn State's defense, big picture questions that come in response to that just what are your broad thoughts on that football game? Was that the worst loss you have ever seen out of Penn State? And that comes to the caveat that we all, that you and I always try to include, which is that you and I became Penn State fans in 2010 when we enrolled in school. Yeah,
1: so I, considering that, I think pretty comfortably, yes. I, I've been trying to think if there was one that was worse. I mean, the last time we lost to Illinois wasn't great. Um, uh, there's some really ugly Michigan state
0: losses here and there. Um, they, they, you know, I mean, there's Maryland last year, but like, yeah, I think I, like, I think we're all willing to just flush everything down the toilet with right. uh, When you,
1: when you consider all the, when you consider all the circumstances around every other bad loss, like this, I think is pretty comfortably the worst. Like, yes, Sean Clifford was hurt. It was rainy in the first half. Like, all those things are factors. Sure, absolutely. But I have a really hard time picking a, a loss that was worse than this one. Was, this was pretty bad.
0: This felt like, to me, I don't know if you're going to remember this game. Um, it was in 2014 or 2015. It was the first or the second year of uh, James Franklin's area. I think it was when yeah, it was 2015. Army comes to Happy Valley, October 3rd. Penn State wins that game 20-14. to 14. Rainy, sloppy mess. Army, if I remember correctly, Army gets the ball with a couple of minutes left in the fourth quarter. And, you know, they have to go all the way down the field and score a touchdown. It's Army. They're probably not doing that quickly enough. And then after the game, James Franklin goes and gives a press conference in which he – for lack of a better term, basically scolds everyone and says, listen, we won. Smile. Be happy. This is We won a football game today. And I just went back to that game, Nick, because there's no loss that we have seen, in my opinion, that is anywhere near as bad as this game. But I go back to that Army game because that was a game where Nobody was happy afterward, even though Penn State won and James Franklin had to put a positive spin on it. And that's what we were heading towards in this game. We were heading towards a game where Penn State, for all intents and purposes, is an exponentially more talented football team than Illinois. And Penn State should have been able to win that game, even if it was a game we were going to come out of feeling really bad about the football team and that didn't happen. And now we're facing a lot of really big picture questions about Penn State, Nick, that it's a point that everyone's raised halfway through the second quarter in Kinnick. We're talking about Penn State is very likely the best team of the big 10, very likely a college football playoff team if they can win out, depending on what happens in Columbus, blah, blah, blah. And now we're finding ourselves in a situation where it's like we're talking ourselves into going to Nashville in December for the whatever the hell bowl they have in Nashville for the Big Ten.
1: Yeah, it definitely changes the calculus of the season. And I will note, I do remember the Army game for two reasons. One, because that was one of the games I was in the press box for. And two, that was I, – and I know that because it was raining and everyone else was miserable and I was just fine. I,
0: um, I, I actually woke uh, – that was when I was living in State College. I actually woke up that morning, opened my blinds, looked outside, saw it was raining and went, nope, and then I just missed the game. So same way. The other –
1: the other reason I remember that game is because that's the game where half of the Penn State fan base decided that Mike Kosicki would never amount to anything because he dropped a pass in the rain. So I remember it for that reason.
0: Too. Oh, yeah. And then two weeks later in Columbus, if I remember correctly, or a month later, whatever it was in Columbus, like hacked through a dime that hit him like – on the numbers and he just dropped it and he was all done. Ah, yeah, I remember God people. Could you imagine that like tight ends dropping passes in the rain when they could have ended up scoring like that? I can't imagine that happening again. Uh, so let's dive into this football game a little bit. We're going to start. What I want to start with Nick is I want to like do the one thing that is like something of a silver lining of a, on the turd. That was this football game. That's, I want to talk about Penn state's defense. Uh, By no means did they have their best game. It would be ridiculous to claim that. Illinois, 395 yards of total offense. Uh, That number is far more impressive than Penn State because of Penn State's offense. But uh, Illinois ran the ball for 357 yards, 5.3 yards per carry nine for 18 on third downs, 26 first downs had the ball for 36 minutes and 25 seconds of game time. Having said all of that, Nick, while by, don't get me wrong, by no means was this a good performance by Penn state's defense. This is not the standard they have set for themselves. I don't think this was as bad as you might be prone to think, uh, when you look at some of the numbers on this one, is that, would you agree with that statement or do you think that it was probably pretty bad? Uh,
1: I both agree and disagree. Uh, I think Jair Brown and Curtis Jacobs both played great games on that side of the ball. And, but those are really the only two and uh, Joey Porter jr. Played well as well. I think those are the only three that I would say really had standout games for the defense. Um, I it's Yes. They, They only allowed, whatever, 20 total points in all that time. Uh, But they had some key takeaways to help them get to that point. But allowing over five yards a rush is just not – especially against a team that you know is running the football is just not something that we've really seen from a Penn State defense. I'm not sure since Brent Pry and James Franklin got to happy Valley, I'm not sure we've ever seen a rushing performance against Penn State quite like that despite some – much better rushing teams going up against them. Um, and honestly, if Illinois had a quarterback that could complete a 10 yard pass, that game could have been a lot uglier and look a lot worse for that Penn State defense. But I think the point is valid that, you know, they, they weren't perfect, but they, and they did a lot of bending, but they didn't do a lot of breaking. They got some key turnovers, should have had an early touchdown on a fumble that inexplicably was called a stop of forward progress. Um, like they they did a lot of good things. A uh, couple dropped interceptions. You said Ellis Brooks dropped interception, and then the Jaquan Brisker dropped interception that could have ended the game in the first overtime. So it was not their best day, but it was not their worst day either. Like that, it was still overall a pretty good performance by the defense. Um, but I and I'll, I'll talk about what I think the big issue. I'll actually save what I thought was the big issue with the run defense when we get to talking about the Penn State offense because the kind of the mirror image, seeing what Illinois did on both sides of the ball compared to what Penn State did on both sides of the ball, spoiler, against the run is where we're going to focus. It really kind of tells the story of the game for me.
0: Yeah, a big thing here is that uh, because Nick was in attendance, he decided to go back and watch this game and get a better sense of what happened. And I have no intention of ever rewatching this game. One thing I will say uh, about Penn State's defense is that, yes – 357 rushing yards on 67 attempts. Not good. Uh, I, they got bailed out a bit by Illinois in overtime deciding they just weren't going to run the ball. Obviously a big part of that uh, chase Brown ended up going down, getting hurt all the best to him. Like I just, th- they ran that dude ragged and he responded in the biggest way. Like I came away very impressed by his performance. Uh, the other injury news uh, from the game for Illinois' sake is that uh, starting quarterback Art Sikowski uh, broken wrist out for the season. All the best to him as well. Uh, but Illinois, I, I almost felt like if they decided to run the ball in overtime that and they don't like feel like they have to throw it into the end zone, they probably do well I mean, probably win that game a little bit sooner. Uh, we saw kind of the limitations of the bend, but don't break defense. I mean, not, I, I don't want to say limitations because for all of that stuff, Nick, They still allowed 10 points. If Penn State's defense allows 10 points in a football game, no excuses it should win that football game. And they didn't do that. Like you mentioned uh, the brisker dropped interception that could have sealed it. Uh, You mentioned that horrific call to take points off the board for forward progress. There are just so many moments like so many individual moments like that on both sides of the ball that I think we can point to, but kind of my overarching thing from this game is that it's against Illinois and you allowed 10 points. It shouldn't come down to whether or not one player does one thing one time. And I know you weren't doing that. This is more just like a broad thing. It shouldn't come down to whether one player does one thing at one time or one official blows the, blows their whistle one time and makes a ruling that is very stupid you should be able to win this game no matter what and what I saw out of Illinois Nick and if you want to tease the stuff you're going to mention about the running offense in a second by all means go ahead what I saw out of Illinois was they were a team that realized Penn State maybe this is their game plan with P.J. Mustafer in. I don't think it's as effective as P.J. Mustafer is in but they saw a Penn State team that they knew Penn State was going to have four down linemen. They were going to be able to get a little bit of a push and they were going to be able to get their running backs into the second and third level of Penn State's defense consistently because they knew they were going to win in the trenches every single time. Again, it, you can if you want to have this lead into what we're going to talk about with Penn State's offense, because I don't think we need to do a ton of talking about Penn State's defense by all means, but that's just what I thought while I was watching the game, what say you?
1: Yeah, I mean, part of it, and I'll I'll touch on it more in a moment too, but yeah, part of it is that it wasn't that Illinois' running backs were getting to the second and third level. It was that they were consistently getting to the third level, and it's because they were able to get their blockers to the second level, which is something that Penn State was not able to do. I Again, I'll talk about it in a moment. But that was that was the biggest thing. Like, this was not a good day for Ellis Brooks and Brandon Smith. I know Brandon Smith ended up with that forced fumble later on and they had a couple other nice tackles. Um, but this was not a good game for those two overall. And I don't even I don't even know what their box scores ended up looking like for those guys, but they were consistently eaten up by offensive linemen and tight ends at the second level and not able to shed their blocks and make plays on the running backs. That was a true consistency through the entirety of this game. This is, That is not what any of us or any Penn State fan or any college football fan who follows this guy. Ellis Brooks and Brandon Smith are both guys that should have aspirations of playing on Sundays. We know Brandon Smith does. Ellis Brooks has been playing himself into somebody that has a chance to do that. In this season to this point, they did not play like that. Play like that for most of the game on Saturday.
0: Yeah, uh, Brooks 11 tackles, eight solo, one tackle for loss. Brandon Smith seven, five solo, one tackle for loss, one sack. Uh, leading tackler on the day, and this this does kind of give the entire thing away, uh, was Jair Brown 13 tackles, 11 solo. Nick, I'm going to read you a stat. And when I read you this stat, I am excited for the noise that you are going to make, okay? All right. This is from our pal Sean Fitz of 24-7. Art Sikowski had 11 yards on four quarterback sneaks. (laughs) (laughs) On quarterback sneak, they were consistently running them on third and two, third and three those sorts of situations, but they knew that Penn State was not going to provide the kind of resistance up the very middle, literally behind the ass of the other, get behind the ass of your guard and your center and just go forward. And they were able to get 11 yards on quarterback sneaks. Turn on, if you have a gaming uh, console right now, Xbox, PlayStation, whatever it is, turn on Madden, pause this podcast, turn on Madden, go run four quarterback sneaks with literally, and use Josh Allen. He's really good at them. You are going to get maybe three yards on that. Penn State was just getting eaten up in the interior of its defense in a way that was shocking. And yeah, it was bad. But again, Nick, 10 points. They should win that football game. The big issue was Penn State's offense. This is the grand overarching issue above everything else. Penn State's offense couldn't make it so Illinois' offense had to get away from the game plan that it wanted to have. Illinois wanted to go out there and run the football, run the football, run the football, these nice six, 10-minute drives with double-digit plays, and Penn State's offense let them do that. I want to start with Penn State's passing game. Uh, talk, we'll talk about a host. We'll, we'll talk about the quarterback situation in a second. Passing game, I was fine with um, it, Even if Clifford wasn't hurt, it was a messy game in the rain. So the entire plan was going to be throw the ball to Jahan, Jahan Dotson, six receptions, sixty-nine yards. Kandre Lambert-Smith, three forty-nine and one. The only thing I was pro- I was like disappointed in, was that one Theo Johnson drop. But, like, there really was never going to be a situation where I thought Penn State's pass catchers were going to have a real chance to leave their mark on this game. Largely for situations outside of their control, again, aside from that one drop from Theo Johnson. What do you say?
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think, it, yeah, like you said, this is never going to be a day for the Penn State receivers necessarily. Um, but I, it was pretty telling, you know, the passing game. It it after the first four completions in a row for Clifford, uh, he did have a stretch of one, two, three, four, five, six incompletions to end that first half. And then the second half was kind of more spread out, back and forth, completions, incompletions, all that. But it just seemed like overall his effectiveness, his ability to deliver the ball where he wanted to deliver it, just deteriorated over the course of the game. Which makes sense because he's injured. He's hurt right now. And I'm sure the injury was hurting more and more and more as the game went on. He took a bunch of hits, including a late hit that should have been flagged and wasn't, that you know, it's, it's going to take a toll on you over time. And you know, I, the weirdest thing about the passing game on Saturday to me was that we have been seeing them treat the quick wide receiver bubble screen game as an extension mm-hmm. of the run game all year long and they uh, there there were maybe 3 of them, 4 of them in this game. Like it was and I know they and there were a couple of nice like the The one that uh where Keandre Lambert Smith missed the block and Dotson got tackled for all. like that was a you know bad miss by Lambert Smith, but great individual play by the cornerback. And Illinois uh defensive backs were fantastic tacklers all day long too. Great uh, absolute credit to them. They played that they played their asses off. But It was just straight—everything about this game was weird. I want to emphasize that. Every single thing about this game was just weird. And to see Penn State go away from this bubble screen game that they had been using so effectively and removing this type of pass that, you know, I don't know, maybe it was going to be more difficult for Clifford to— twist his body in the direction it needed to be quickly enough to deliver an accurate ball. And those, maybe that's why they went away from them. I don't know, but it was just strange to see them not use this thing that has been an integral part of their offense for setting up other things, including setting up the actual run game. And it, it, it like, I, I, like I'm almost at a loss of words because well, again, well, it was
0: just weird. Well, here's the, here's what we can – I think we can say with some certainty. They made the decision – my guess is they probably made that decision whenever they decided there was a chance Sean Clifford could play. So, like, let's, let's hypothetically say, like, his first practice was Tuesday. Just – I don't know for sure. I'll just throw something out there. We'll say his last – first practice was Tuesday last week. Uh, and they went, okay, maybe Sean can play. Let's have a game plan ready in case Sean can play. Again – Total hypothetical. My guess was the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth thing they said was, we're not going to have Sean rip it. We're not going to go deep. We're not going to do something that has worked really well for this passing offense This has taken advantage of what Sean could do. Between the weather, between his injury, I get that. What I don't get, Nick, was the total lack, it seemed, of just trying to get the ball out of Sean Clifford's hands and into the hands of playmakers that it, just in you're, you're, with so, some, you're not yeah, wrong. You're not like wrong. That, scre- yeah. That, th- that was weird. There was, there was this like the screen game. You're right. But like, you know, run a jet sweep with Parker Washington, man. Like let's try a little tight end screen to Brent, to Theo Johnson or Brenton strange. And like, let them get moving with a bit of a head of steam. Let's tra- – try. Well, the screen game is a perfect example. It's just like there was that kind of stuff that we'll, – we'll, we'll go right into the – do you want to go right into the Clifford talk now or do you want to do running game and then Clifford? Uh, up to you. All right, we'll go into Clifford right now. Um, it made me – the the it made me think Sean Clifford was probably – more banged up than he they he he was probably a little too banged up to play in this game but uh, that he he played he he was probably too banged up to to be effective which is why Nick I think the player we learned the most about on Saturday was Taquan Roberson because I don't know how you could watch Sean Clifford grabbing at his side like me When I had like right before I had my appendix taken out or you could see him just being off with every single throw or you can see him be gifted acres of space in the running game and just choosing to not take it or you can see him rolling out to his left and rolling and rolling and rolling and having a little bit of room, but deciding instead he's going to slide his feet like he's working on a, a man-to-man drill at basketball practice and then just give himself up before someone can hit him and go, that's the guy who could do enough to win us this football game. I generally think they probably should have been able to win this game even with a banged-up Clifford. That'll get to the issues with the running game. But again, I think the guy that we learned the most about really this entire week leading up to the game was Taquan Roverson because I just don't know if that was, if Sean Clifford in that state was the guy that gave you the best chance to win, what the hell is behind him at this point? Yeah, it's fair. He,
1: yeah, like he said, at, at really at no point did he look comfortable like like, he was reaching for his side pretty much every chance he got he didn't have the same touch on most of his throws all day that he normally like there were like uh to think to point out one specifically the missed Parker Washington touchdown early in the game where Clifford easily identified the blitz was coming he had everyone prepared he knew that he was gonna have to get rid of that ball quickly a fully healthy Clifford is able to take one step to his right and then deliver that ball perfectly, or just hang in one more second and power off his back foot a little more and put the ball where it needs to be. Not unlike the touchdown against Wisconsin, the first one to Jahan Dotson, where he just did one little shimmy to the left and then had an easy path. Like it, It is a touchdown if he is able to throw and move as he normally does because I mean, that was as wide open of a touchdown as he's had an opportunity for all season. It was just... It, it like it it was not in a good place to start the game, and it just got worse as he as it went on. And like you said, like if like I I can't imagine that if Taquan Roberson was trusted to do anything positive with the offense, that he wouldn't have come into that game fairly early on after Clifford took some hits, especially after the offense wasn't able to do anything. Like at a time when Having a quarterback who could run, like you said, would have really benefited the offense because Illinois was consistently dropping a lot of guys into coverage. The linebackers were mostly thinking run, like they were—they were pretty much always thinking run before pass, but still being able to react and get back there. But they were not—you know—they weren't doing anything necessarily exotic with the defense. They were just playing straight up attacking the line of scrimmage and then letting their linebackers clean everything up that came over the middle and leaving their secondaries on islands and a lot of man coverage. And that is a, that's how like when you, if you have a quarterback who can run, you could eat chunks of yards in that type of situation. And it, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you can't trust Taquan Roberson to do that, even.
0: Well, then... well that's, that, that's my question, Nick, like how in, two weeks of preparing for this game. And they made obvious at the very jump that their plan was, we are going to try and run the football here. Penn State, uh, its first drive, Kavon Lee, run for a loss of three. Kavon Lee, run for one yard. uh, Sean Clifford sacked. Punt next drive, Kayvon. We run for 13, Kayvon. We run for eight, Kayvon. We nothing, Kayvon. We one yard punt. Noah Kane first play of the next drive, run for four. Penn State made it clear they wanted to try and run the football in this game, and that's what's fascinating to me because, like, I think you'll agree with me. The only time Saquon Roberson looked impressive against Iowa was when the offense was moving a little bit and he was able to use his legs and it is just baffling to me. And I have no idea who this is on that. They weren't able to put together. And and you know what? Like I'll just come out and say it. They might have been complacent. They might have just straight up said, we are not worried about Illinois in the slightest. We could throw Sean out there when he is not totally healthy and we can still win this football game. I have no idea what it was, but if you can't put together an offense where you have Taquan Roberson out there running a little bit and un- you are unable to beat Illinois as a result of that, man, I got some major questions that I need answered.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I really don't have
0: anything to add to that. You nailed it. So let's get to the running game. I mean, Penn state, uh, ran the ball 29 times, 62 yards. Sacks are factored into that 2.1 yards per carry. Noah Cain led the way, 11.43, 3.9 yards per carry. Kayvon Lee, 7.24, 3.4 yards per carry. John Lovett, 5 for 21, 4.2 yards per carry. But 18 of those came on one carry. Uh, Nick, it was so bad. It was so incredibly bad that literally... My only thought was how big of a disaster was last season? Like that, that like literally that is the only thing that makes sense to me. Last season was so bad. So disastrous, such a gigantic step back for the entire offensive side of the football, not named Jahan Dotson and Parker Washington and and Keandre Lambert Smith, that, they're still playing catcher. Like that is literally the only thing I can rationalize because nothing else makes sense to me. It does not make sense to me as our pal, Bill Conley wrote today that Penn state is a hundred and ninth in rushing success rate and couldn't do a damn thing against Illinois. So you have better insight into this than me because you rewatched the game and you paid special attention to this. And you said, you're going to talk about this and Illinois running game hand in hand. So I'm just going to roll the ball out there and say, Nick floor is yours. Please uh, make it make sense.
1: (laughs) So I think the kind of the genesis of all this is it's just the difference in how these two offensive lines played on Saturday. Like I said before, the Penn State defense when Illinois was running the football almost on almost every single run that they had both Brooks and Smith were met with either offensive linemen or tight ends in the second level before the running back was even at the second level like it was consistent almost every single run they were in the second level blocking and giving the giving the running back a excellent opportunity to get to the third level i and I'm going to scroll just here just to double check. I believe that I counted one run play that Penn State ran where I saw a successful run with a blocker at the second level. Yeah, I see I see one. I see one time that that happened, which really tells the story right off the bat. But the other thing is just the difference in how these teams run. I've been in how these uh, offensive lines blocked and there was an interesting counterpoint that I'll bring up in a moment here about why this is the case. But, and I'll preface this. I am not, I, I have not coached football. I did not play football in high school. Um, I don't know the intricacies of offensive line blocking technique, but to me, there's a pretty simple formula of when you are run blocking you are trying to move your man downfield to give your running back space. Now, there are obviously, there are caveats to that if you're trying to uh, open a hole and move a guy to his side, yada, yada. But as in a general sense, you are, your goal is to move the line of scrimmage further down the field to give your running back more space. And when you pass block, that's when you're anchoring in, you're getting that nice big kickback, and you are just trying to create a pocket. When I watch the Penn State offensive line block, pass block and run block, to me, it looks identical. I see offensive linemen for Penn State actually sometimes moving backwards to anchor themselves in the ground on their run blocking. And when I watch that personally, the first thing that comes into my mind is, well, one, even if you are successful with this block, how are you ever going to be able to provide help further down the field? How are you ever going to get to the second level? To continue blocking for your running back, and i, I it, it does not compute to me what the reasoning would be for that aside from the caveat that was brought up we were talking earlier and the point was brought up, well, I wonder if this is kind of a holdover from the more RPO-heavy offenses of Kirk Scirocco and Ricky Rodney and Joe Moorhead before them, when the goal was when you really didn't know if it was going to be a run or a pass on any given play. And I, that, you know, that could very well be a factor here. Like Maybe they have just been blocking for those certain systems, most of these guys, for several years now, and this is the first time under Mike Yersich that they've really been in a more yeah, you know, they do. They do still have some RPO concepts, but it is more. Most of the time, it is we are running or passing before the snap is made. Like it, that determination has already been made. So I do wonder if that's a part of it. But it's like to me, I don't see. I understand why they aren't why they aren't effective run blockers, and it's because. And Franklin talked about last week how they didn't have kind of the nastiness, and or two weeks ago they didn't have the nastiness of the run blocking game. And based on how they run block, I don't see how they can. It 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 is it is mind boggling to me. I don't I don't I don't understand the difference. And I've seen uh, you know I've seen it tossed around like, oh, well, is Phil Treadwell really always always cracked up to be one? You know, I, maybe Steve Adazio does deserve more credit for the offensive line play at Boston College than we thought because you know he's an offensive line guy, but. Trout wine built a nearly entirely all conference team of offensive linemen at Boston college, which with much less talent. I, I just have a really hard time believing that he doesn't know how to coach up offensive linemen. So I like it. And this has also been something like we have seen the same issues for every offensive line coach and every offense coordinator that we have had under James Franklin. Yeah. Like it, it hasn't changed. And, uh, you know, it would take someone more knowledgeable in that area than me to go back and look at the differences in how they how the different uh, groups of offensive linemen have blocked with the different offensive line coaches and coordinators and all that jazz to really know if there's a difference. But to me, it it they just they don't like the offensive line looks disjointed to what is happening elsewhere on the offense and. I, I really, I hate doing this. I am almost never going to be somebody who criticizes one player in college. I'll, I'll do it to pros all day. But not, I don't like doing it to college kids because that's it's, it's not how I operate. I don't like that. But Mike Miranda should not be on this starting offensive line anymore. Of the play, of, I charted every run play here as I was doing this rewatch. And if I just go through it, just play by play, uh, Miranda can't stop his guy here. Walker and Miranda beaten quickly. Perfectly timed blitz, Miranda whiffs, can't get him. Uh, Wallace misses a block. Miranda misses a block. Good Miranda job to open the hole, but nothing else happens the way it's supposed to. Miranda whiffs on a blitzer. Miranda allows early pressure. Miranda can't hold his block. Corner comes off the outside and isn't able to do anything else. Uh, Miranda moves to guard now. Where is that? Uh, yeah, Miranda moves to guard now. Still can't hold his block. Still can't stop his man here. It's his name is littered over this. It's not good. R- and r- it didn't r- matter r- what position he was. Uh, I was
0: gonna say real quick. Uh, the guy Miranda swapped places with Juice Scruggs. Did you notice? Uh, what, like, was there any? And if you had, didn't have a chance to like jot this down yet, that's fine. Did Did you notice anything once he took over at center? Like, was were things looking more cohesive? Was Illinois struggling to like get get by him? Like, just that sort of thing.
1: Um, I wouldn't say it was terribly different. Um, Scruggs himself, I have on here three times. Once at once at guard, couldn't hold couldn't hold a block and keep his keep his guy out of there, and then. Two, two spots where he missed a blitzer, but it is also worth noting that Illinois, I forget, I don't know the linebacker's name, but he, he was, he was inside their heads. He was timing his blitzes perfectly all day. That's a really, that's a tough play for a center. So that is worth acknowledging. Um, but overall, I, I think it did get a little bit better when Scruggs moved to center. Noah Kane was in, but it also coincided with Kane getting in the game a little more. He wasn't, he wasn't really in the game as much as early, um, but they did get a little bit more going once those two switched spots. But I would uh, once he moved to center, Scruggs started struggling more than he was at guard. Miranda pretty much stayed the same. But I, I wouldn't say it made a huge difference. I would say it was slightly better. But I, like something something needs to change. And I said a couple weeks ago specifically, I said. I I wouldn't change something about the offensive line because they're doing so well in pass protection that, you know, if the run game's not gonna be there, not gonna be as good as it is, be as good as it can be, so be it, the pass game's working. But if Sean Clifford's gonna be hurt and they're not gonna be able to throw the ball the way they want to, something has to change because they have to figure something out in this run game. It was just the same thing all day long. Every single Penn State running back was getting hit behind the line scrimmage on almost every single carry they had. And there was one occasion where I saw blockers get to the second level in a way that was actually effective for the play. They did get to the second level on some other plays, but then one side of the line completely collapsed and it didn't matter anyway. There was one time I saw it happen and Illinois was able to do it on every single run play they ran. It, it It was a remarkable difference in how those two teams ran the football, both in effectiveness and just you know just style and you know I'm I'm sure the EPA numbers will flesh that out as well but it it was like night and day watching the difference between these two teams run the football the, it was the, yeah, in, yeah I, I don't even have a word for it
0: honestly yeah the 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 main takeaway that I have Uh, from all of that is it reminded me last night that um i noticed that chris collinsworth does not refer to them as rpos they are always those rpos or these rpos so pay attention to that the next time you listen to chris collinsworth and not his son jack who has the exact same voice uh but yeah i mean the, the big point i wanted to raise uh It's in support of what Nick said, and it's not something that I said. It's something that uh, this guy who knows a thing or two about Penn State by the name of Christian Hackenberg said. Uh, I don't know if anyone has seen this, but uh, the Twitter account, the Field of 12, I suppose the the company, the Field of 12, does like a late night college football Saturday night. Everyone cracks open a beer and talks about what they just saw thing. Uh, Hack. Uh Quint Sterner, George Whitfield, Bryce Petty and they had Hack on and they just straight up said to Christian what the hell man like what happened this sort of thing and he gave it was a really good conversation there was a lot of stuff in there about the transfer portal and uh, how Penn State's number two like the guy Penn State has, has had as his backup quarterback and now the number one, some, one somewhere else that stuff is kind of like broad college football talk I I, I recommend it regardless but the one thing that Hack said that stuck with me and this is a direct quote you know I might have tweaked a word or two from it I think the offensive line has done a very very poor job being violent at the line of scrimmage and for the amount of time that coach Franklin has had up there to get some guys in there with a little uh little expletive to them um, and some want to to dominate the line of scrimmage it just really hasn't come to fruition he made a lot of really good points about How Penn State is a school that had over the years has always had good offensive linemen, always had offensive linemen that were nasty, knows the importance of building there and going from there. And he straight up said, name me one All-American offensive lineman from Penn State over the the Franklin tenure. I will wait. And you can't do it because Penn State hasn't had that. And so much of it seems to want just not having – that little bit of nasty to you, that little, like Nick mentioned, that little bit of, there's a guy lining up across from me, it is the highest honor of my life to drive him into the ground. And I think when you mix that with, and we'll wrap it up here before we go into the bigger picture stuff, Nick, you factor in, you look at Penn State's running back. Um, I think Noah Kane doesn't look like The guy that we all fell in love with, which injuries are going to catch up to you at that level. I don't blame him for that at all. He's still doing everything he can. He's still Penn State's best back, I think, at seeing space open up and running towards it. Uh, Kayvon Lee, when he has room to run, I think he's very good. But I just, I I think his fumble issues might be in his head a little bit. And I don't think he's the best guy like he's a little too patient, I will say. He's a little bit too willing to say, "All right, I'm going to wait for a hole to open up. I'm going to get happy feet," and it ends up costing them. And then John Lovett came and, in, and he might be hurt now anyway. Might be. And then John Lovett is uh, the change of pace guy, the little bit more of a speedy thread, more of a passing threat. But when there's no first, that first gear doesn't exist because of Kane's limitations and because of what we see in at Ole. You can't really get to that. It's, it, it's unfortunate. Like I, I think the backs could be better by all means. Don't get me wrong. I think the running backs could be better, but I think this is very much an issue of it starts up front and it has to get better up front before it's going to get better in the backfield.
1: Yeah, hundred um, percent. But like you said, it, it is very much worth noting that they do not have a difference maker at running back right now. And that's what we were hoping that Noah Kane would be. But like you said, pretty clearly not the same guy that we previously knew like, and even even a difference maker running back would have a tough time behind this offensive line, the way that they block for them. But there were a bunch of occasions on, in this rewatch that I just did where I, I noted said, "Ah, if he could have bounced it outside, he had a lot of space, but Penn state doesn't have that guy. Like they don't, they don't have the journey Brown or the Saquon Barkley or the Miles Sanders to go out and make those plays. And it's yeah, and, it's, and if if I can interrupt you, those two things you, combined
0: makes it really tough. And if I can interrupt you, that makes the fact that they can't run the damn ball between the tackles all the more inexplicable. Yeah. Like, what were you working on all off season if you can't do that? Um, I I it was put on display during overtime uh, in a bunch of different ways. Um, the the fact that they can't pick up two to three yards is inexplicable. Um, it is shocking uh the fact that their best short yardage play when I think they were facing like a fourth and one or something on overtime was to bring in your third string tight end and he was stood up at first and then a second effort got him across was yeah, shocking not
1: not good blocking on that play that was all I bad. can only imagine so like it's just that
0: stuff and i i I think we'll get we'll, we'll talk about that in one second but I want to ask Nick because it's a thing that has been on the minds of a lot of Penn State fans, and I legitimately have zero answer. Well, I I, I have something of an answer. Penn State has lost four year four out of five years the game after its first loss. Uh, two of those were to Michigan State after losing to Ohio State. Those weren't Michigan like great Michigan State teams, but like I You know, I don't want to say they should have lost those games by any stretch of the imagination, but it really seemed like in those games a team was coming out after, you know, getting knocked out in the 12th round of a title fight that they were otherwise winning. Uh, one year was that Minnesota game, which, you know, again, it was kind of that same vibe. And then there was Ohio State last year after the Indiana game. They were never beat in Ohio State last year. So, you know. It's a weird like dichotomy of, on one hand, yeah, that's not a good thing. On the other hand, I get why they lost those games. But then at the same time, like that doesn't make it any easier to swallow the pill, any easier to swallow that they lost to Illinois. Like, Is there anything other than what I just mentioned that you might ascribe? They have that weird thing hanging over them, too.
1: No, I don't think so. and yeah, like you said, everything requires context so like just like the Penn State quarterback situation requires context, the those this you know two lost trend requires context. but you know it at, at a certain point, even considering the context, you do need to start asking like, what the hell like why is this why is this continually a thing and I and, and,
0: and again if I may interject. Why are you letting it be a thing? Why are you, what are you doing in the week leading up to a game after a loss that, especially in the week leading up to this loss, that you let this fact be a thing? I guarantee, guarantee that James Franklin, like we all became aware of, you have lost four out of your last five after your first loss. I guarantee James Franklin, with how smart of a guy he is and how money, people he has around him uh, just because that's the nature of college football was aware oh damn we've lost three of our last four after our first loss that's not good I guarantee I, I don't know for sure like I'm not going to sit here and report that I guarantee James Franklin either knows that or was like oh that's weird
1: yeah it's it's especially tough for a coach and a team that hang on that 1-0 and mindset the way that they do. Not that ever like, to be clear, every team is on a one and no mindset. Every, every team has some variation of that mantra. It's whether whether it's something like we don't care who's on the other side of the field, name nameless nameless jerseys, faceless guys, like we're F- just going focus, out there win.
0: Focusing on what we got to do this week. Or yeah, that
1: like all all of that is the same basic mantra that every on every sports team ever. Like that that is always the goal. Like you. You always want to be focused on the team in front of you. And 1-0 is just an offshoot of that same idea. But it is something that, you know, I'd say that Franklin does preach that mindset more than most probably do. And if you cannot, and again, context is everything. It is like the Clifford injury is a thing. The weather is a thing, all that stuff. But if you cannot have your team... Your offense, specifically, ready with the game plan that you've been working on for two weeks now against an Illinois football team that, you know, like the Illinois defense has been fine this year, but it's not a good football team. Just straight up, it is not a good football team. I, my opinion of them as a, of a team as a team has not changed. I think they are very much still a bottom two team in the conference. But to not – and to not be able to be prepared for that situation when you are going to go out and preach 1-0, 1-0, 1-0 is just not acceptable. And I love James Franklin. I think he's – I'm going to jump ahead here. I think he's 100% the person for this job, and I there's nobody else I would want coaching Penn State right now. Well, I'm not nobody, but you know you know what I mean. It, but it, it's – it is – even considering context it is very much now a thing that they let one loss boil into two and i don't know how i don't know why i don't know how i'm not in the room i don't i don't know like why it is so difficult for this team to come back after those types of losses but it it is i think it is absolutely it has to be considered a thing now
0: and probably was already yeah yeah I, I, well i mean I I think it's something that we all have mentioned for years, right? Like, yeah. After the first time they lost to Ohio, what was that? 2017 in 2018 on the 2018 edition of this podcast before and after the game, you said, we said, you can't let Ohio state beat you twice in a row after, uh, who was it? Who did they suffer their first loss to in 2019? That was Ohio state too, correct? Uh, It was Ohio state and then Minnesota yes that sounds right um, yeah yes. Give me a second. I'm, I'm, I'm pulling it up now uh what to, or was to, minnesota to, the first loss oh wait no 2019 was the year that they they lost to minnesota then beat indiana in a in a game that was a little too close for comfort and then lost to ohio state okay there we go okay. uh so then yeah then you get to last year lose to indiana uh We all kind of were going to say, all right, they're going to lose to Ohio State. But then even the week after that, like after they lost to Ohio State 38-25, they came out and like crapped all over the field against Maryland. They lost 35-19. We said again, you let Ohio State beat you twice. And that's the thing that is happening with Penn State football more than anything, is that these losses to good teams – are just lingering so much and it's becoming a narrative. I don't know, like, I think there has to be context to it. Like the 2020 team, they lost that game to Indiana and it was, uh lost that game to Indiana and that was on a very controversial call. They probably should have ended up winning that game a few separate times, but they got that taken away from them, that uh, Ohio State game in 2000 and uh, 17 the following week, to a, a Michigan State team that was ranked number 24 at the time that had a three-hour weather delay in the middle of it. And they win that game, if not for one bad weight penalty, probably. 2018 team, kind of the same thing. I mean, uh, Trace McSorley very much wasn't himself after that Ohio State game. That killed them against Michigan State. So like, there's all that context, but that context doesn't matter because all that matters is that it happened. And that's where we're at right now. How does that change? Like, I don't know how that changes. Like, next you know, year— I, I think—oh, I th- sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, next year, after Penn State plays Ohio State, do you know what they have to do the following week, Nick? They go to Ann Arbor. They go to Ann Arbor. There is there's a very good chance that Penn State starts the year 3-3 three and three and goes into—and after that game against Michigan— has lost two games in a row and guess who they have the week after Michigan Nick
1: Ooh uh, They have Illinois Indiana and Beaver
0: St- They have Illinois and Beaver Stadium
1: oh that's right I forgot
0: (laughs) so like this is something that's going to linger and this is something that they have to fix for next season like forget next week like I'm punting on next week this upcoming week I'm accepting that Penn State's going to lose in Columbus at this point it's becoming I hope Penn State is able to regroup after its third loss in a row and then go beat a Maryland team that kicked the hell out of them last season. I think they probably will be able to do that, but that's not like that's where we're at right now, and that leads to the big question. The well, before team... before, oh, we, go ahead. before go ahead. we go straight into that,
1: go ahead. You know, you know what I think it really boils down to when we're What's talking done? about these back-to-back losses. In a way, I think it still goes back to the great not elite speech, but not in the sense of players remember, like not that sort of thing. No, yeah not not in not in that sense and not I'm not I don't mean in the sense of that just like you know the frontline Penn State players are not the frontline Ohio State players I think the thing that is keeping Penn State from joining one of the things that is keeping them from joining the upper echelon of college football the true upper echelon of college football and why they are more synonymous and on the level with most other programs in college football is the thing that almost every program struggles with And that's building quality depth because when you have the depth that an Ohio state or an Alabama or a Georgia has, look at Georgia, Georgia's undefeated and their backup quarterbacks played most of the season. Like when you have the depth that those teams have, when you recruit at the level that those teams recruit, they're not just recruiting blue chip kids. They're recruiting kids that are ready to play year one or year Mm -hmm. two at the latest. So if you have to go to them, they're ready. But when you are Penn State, you know, Penn State recruits a lot of really talented kids. And, you know, maybe this upcoming class is the one that changes that. This is one of Franklin's best classes at Penn State that's coming up in 2022. And maybe they're the ones that change that. But more often than not, there's, you know, maybe three or four kids that get to play as freshmen that are ready to play as freshmen. Most everybody else takes a couple years, which is fine. They will eventually cycle into being starters and it, it will continue to happen with this Penn state roster. But when you are coming off of losses or where you are coming off of tough games, usually in losses, your, play, your players are on the field a lot. You probably picked up an injury or two, and it's something that you need to weather with depth going forward. And, Penn mm-hmm. State has plenty of talent on the roster, but they – especially right now, and we've been talking all season long about how depth of this – like this Penn current Penn State team does not have quality top-10 caliber depth. They just don't. They have a – they absolutely have a top-10 caliber starting lineup, but beyond that, we've already seen that Bear Fruits with Taquan Roberson and Devon Ellis and Kazai Izzard. And, you know, Ellie's and editor have performed well in the stead of P.J. Mustapher, but they're not P.J. Mustapher. When you don't have that depth to be able to get by an Illinois team where you know the game is going to be ugly and you know it's going to be gross, but you need to have your kind of your second unit or a few backups here and there be able to get the job done while you try to prepare for the next team that you're playing, where you need everyone at full tilt. Like that, that's what Penn state doesn't have right now. And that's what they haven't had. Not unique to them though. Like that's something that most teams in college football don't have. And that's what separates the great from the elite. So in a way, I think it still comes back to that. And that I think is one of the key reasons why this loss after a loss is something that continues to plague them.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a good thing that, uh, that Matt mentioned on the, uh, Twitter spaces we did after the game, uh, there was a, like, he was talking about the value of having, you know, you have your one at quarterback, you have that guy who, uh, you, you had your one, You that guy who you know you're going to roll out there, he's going to be your stud, that sort of thing, um, but then you need that backup guy who, and Stetson Bennett is the perfect example of this. The guy that grew up loving your program, who thinks the biggest honor of his life is going to be wearing that jersey. If he never gets into the game, he never gets into a game. All that matters to him is he's representing the school. But if he ever gets into the game, he's going to play his heart out because again, he like he grew up dreaming of this. Like, you know, fast-forwarding a bit, I think Bo Perbula is like the perfect guy for that sort of thing. And you know, fingers crossed, that ends up coming to fruition. But yeah. Let's do it. I could oh, like, If ahead. Penn State. If if Will Levis
1: doesn't leave, Penn State is undefeated right now. Yeah, plain I, and simple. I
0: absolutely agree.
1: Absolutely. Like agree. plain and simple. It's, you know, it, I I ob- obviously have no ill will to I am ecstatic for him that he is succeeding at Kentucky. That is awesome. I'm very happy for him. But it's just the nature of it's the nature of college football that you need to especially now with the transfer portal being correctly free and open as it should be.
0: You need, you don't need to just have two quarterbacks. You need to have three. Yeah. So someone was going to be the first team to lose a game because their backup quarterback left to go start somewhere because of the transfer portal. Like someone was going to be that team. It's Penn State and, and that stinks, but let's do it, Nick. Let's have the conversation. Is James like, it's not like we've heard people say this plenty of times. Um, and you and I have always rebuffed it. We've always said, like, you know, it's stupid, it's insane, but, like all these sorts of things. I think with the two losses and with the sharks circling from LSU, from USC, from you know what, wherever you want to say from Washington right, State R- and Texas Tech, come on, yeah, like wherever you want to say, oh, James Franklin can be a candidate there. Ooh. Do we think? James Franklin is still the right guy for the job. And if you'll indulge me, I will give you my answer very quickly, which is that I think he probably is. And the biggest indictment that I can say of James Franklin is that for me, that answer has always been, Absolutely, no doubt, yes, it's ridiculous to even have this conversation. I've gone from maybe 100% sure to 90% sure, 95% sure. But when you consider where I started from, that to me is pretty telling. Where are you
1: on this? I think what you're saying is totally valid and sensible. You know, there are... You know, there are, obvious, there are several things about the program that have remained stagnant over the years that we would like to see improve. Um, but I'm very much still of the opinion that he is the exact person that I want coaching Penn State football. And you know, there, there's a few factors to it. Like one, I'm I I don't want to be the next team. I don't want to be the next Nebraska to fire Bo Pellini. Like I'm not interested in that. I I am I am a, a person I very much want Penn State to make the college football playoff. Don't get me wrong. Like I very very much want that. But I also just I I am very able to just take you know, I'm very much able to have fun watching Penn State play a relatively successful season, challenge for the Big 10 title, hopefully not, and go to a nice bowl game. Like that if the, if you can continue doing that while continuing to improve everything else under the surface, like Franklin has been doing, like recruiting and facilities and continuing to get better and better coaches, I I feel very comfortable saying that as long as they are able to continue doing that, eventually this team is going to get to that next step. Like, I very much still see that happening. Um, yeah. But I, I, I totally understand why others would disagree with that. But, like... I mean, this is this this is kind of the issue with having this conversation after after one game, especially after a loss, right? Yeah. Like, obviously, it's it's a lot easier to speak uh, definitively definitively about things at this point that we have no rhyme or reason to be speaking definitively on because we don't know what else is going to happen this season.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, like, I, well, what, what let me just say this be, because I I do generally think you're right. The source of frustration for me is that the dumb stuff that happens with this team keeps happening and what totally I fair. that and that's basically where it comes from for me the offensive line has never consistently under james franklin graded out at slightly above average and there have been Four separate offensive coordinators. There have been, I want to say, three or four separate offensive line coaches. And that has five offensive line coaches. And that has the entire time remained an issue. The running game has been very reliant on these five star backs, these crazy talented backs making big plays. The quarterback recruiting has long been, uh, before Drew Aller and I, like, don't get me wrong, I I do not want to have this conversation if Drew Aller is not in this class, because I have no idea if I'm still as empathetic to James Franklin at that point. Um, the quarterback recruiting has always just been not quite where it needs to be. And the quarterback development has just been a little, there's been that inconsistency, see, in having an offensive coordinator. There have been the games where we have seen opposing defenses or opposing quarterbacks will have huge games against Penn State in big games. So it's that stuff all coming together. Now, what I will say is that I think if – I think James Franklin has – an outstanding defensive coordinator. I do think Brent Pry is quite good at his job, even if I am a bit mad at him um, for for some of the stuff we saw. Although I do, I wouldn't be stunned if a lot of the reasons why Penn State didn't go a little more jumbo on the defensive line was just like you're not throwing Anais Hawkins in there, like that's so just like a lack of bodies that you know you could throw in. I think he has a, a great defensive coordinator. I think he has a rock star of an offensive coordinator. I think after this year. James Franklin, more or less, needs to say to Mike Yersich, Mike, you have a year, you've had a year, you've gotten to see what you like, what you don't like. I trust any and all decisions with coaches, with scheme, with recruiting strategy, etc., that you want to do. I don't love the idea of firing uh, Phil line. I don't love the idea... Of getting in a, a you know a new tight end a new position coach at any of the various positions because I do think continuity is going to be pretty important, but I think there don't I still think there are far 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 more reasons Nick to keep James Franklin than there are I'm not going to say fire him because that's just like his buyout something like 32 million that's not happening but to cheer if he decides he wants to go to USC or he wants to go to LSU or he decides he wants to go to the Seattle Seahawks or whatever. Oh God.
1: Uh, Yeah. So I, the thing, you know, anytime, anytime a Franklin possibly moving on to another school comes up, the thing for me is that who are you getting to replace him? Like at, at best you are trying to find
0: the next James Franklin, Right. Like the name that I think a lot of Penn State fans will probably want is Luke Fickle, but, like, I think Luke Fickle would do a very good job here, and I also think he would weave the second that Ryan Day takes an NFL head coaching job. and if yeah. you think if you think keeping James Franklin is worse for perception or optics or anything than hiring Luke Fickle and he bolts after a few years to go to ohio state, you that is just wrong, <laughs> right.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, re- like literally, realistically, who's, who's on the list? You're probably talking maybe Jeff Halfley from Boston College.
0: You're, uh, another, I mean, another Ohio for, State potential guy, yeah.
1: Yeah, for better or worse, you are talking about Luke Fickle, Cincinnati. You're probably talking about Matt Campbell, Iowa State, at least in some sense. His name yeah.
0: seems pretty cool lately. On they, they, most they, they've managed to disappoint a little bit this year, certainly.
1: Ah, uh, you're. I'm. In all likelihood, you're talking Joe Moorhead, depending on what's going on with him health-wise and where he's at. You know, yeah, I
0: mean, jo- he's at, at that point. It, I mean, in the hypothetical, James Franklin leaves, Joe Moorhead's the first call you have to make. But like, I, I also would totally understand if he goes. Listen, guys, like I've, with how much moving around I've done, I have a good situation in Oregon. Yeah, it's fair. I mean,
1: depending on the timing of it, 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 if it were to happen this year, this would not be on the table. But if it were to happen a year or two in the future, Mike Yarish, I think, becomes a possibility. Um, yeah, hell, I mean, Dan,
0: as, Dan, as maybe, as, maybe, maybe Dan Mullen wants to leave. Uh, maybe Dan Mullen wants to leave Florida because he sees that situation is getting into. Like, who knows? As hilarious as it sounds, I think Josh
1: Gattis is potentially. Potentially. And
0: I don't um, think I don't think they can. Hire maybe. A,
1: uh, but yeah, that, that's that's kind of the bottom line. For, is not Penn State is not Ohio State or Alabama or Clemson or LSU. Like you are not taking a top tier coach from another top tier school to fill James Franklin's spot. It's not happening. Yeah. So to me, like, is it you're? It's like replacing. It's like replacing your ace starting pitcher. With a high-profile prospect who has the chance to be better than your ace pitcher, like there are a, is a wild range of outcomes that you know. Hire Jeff Halfley, maybe he becomes like, even more of a superstar, and maybe he turns Penn State into a national powerhouse again.
0: But yeah, it, it, it's the it's the Family Guy bit about. Uh, you know, it's you exactly have, you have, the family guy bit. You, the, there's the boat or there's the mystery box. and There could be anything in a mystery box. There could even be a boat. It is exactly the, it could even
1: be a boat bit. Yeah. Like, it, it, to the T, it is that. I, like, when it comes to, when it comes to the James Franklin discussion, I'm, right now, I'm always going to come back to the same thing. The toughest thing to do when trying to, when trying to emulate Clemson, you know, more or less, like we've said for years, yeah. that the college football coach, that the most successful college football coach that Franklin probably profiles most closely to, is Dabo Swinney. Not personality-wise, none of that terrible person, but the way he runs his program. And the last thing that's always going to come in that process is the quarterback, like the quarterback. Trace McSorley was a great quarterback, but you know, in in the grand scheme, Trace McSorley is kind of like to Penn State. What uh, maybe like Taj Boyd was to Clemson in a sense. Drew Aller represents the best chance to be Penn State's Deshaun Watson that we have seen in his entirety here. And I don't think that you can earnestly move on from Franklin until you give the chance for this eight, was it eight years? Eight year effort. To build the program to a place where when you insert that superstar quarterback, it officially kicks everything into the next gear. I don't think there's any possible way that you can, you know, and I'm not saying he can't leave. He totally could leave for USA or LSU. Absolutely on the table. But Penn, Penn State cannot be the ones to push him out and push him towards that route. He's been building this for this long and it's been waiting for that one piece. And I think you have to, especially with the offensive coordinator that handpicked that piece, you have to give that a chance to come to fruition.
0: Yeah. I mean, I it, it's the thing that I think has been brought up, God, basically from since basically the day Franklin stepped on campus, but like. You know, if anyone who is listening to this podcast is like a big Paterno person, you know we're gonna we're, we're gonna slander Joe a bit here. Like he basically stopped caring about facilities and stuff like that for the and recruiting and stuff like that for the last decade. Whomever was going to be that guy was going to have to take time to invest in facilities, to invest in building up relationships with high school coaches in Pennsylvania and Ohio and New Jersey and Maryland and D.C. and Virginia and all those areas. And this recruiting class is a really good example of how that is being starting to pay, really pay off. Uh, I am of the belief that we shouldn't worry too terribly much about the recruiting class because a total of two kids in it, I believe, Uh, committed to Penn State during this season, which means everyone else committed to Penn State either before, during, or on the heels of last season's catastrophe year. Um, So, like, I'm not too... Like, that's something that I just don't think you need to worry about until you worry about it. And then the one thing I've heard, Nick, that makes me laugh the most is that, oh, no, how can James Franklin go to the athletic department and say, I need money for facilities? Like... Do you really think it would make Penn State an appealing job to any coach in America if they are of the belief that if they struggle, they can't go to the athletic department and say, I need this. I need this thing to help push the program forward. Like. I think there's definitely a chance they're going to be mad. There would be some mad people. You'd get like maybe a couple more people on board with the Jay Paterno, Anthony Lubrano sec of the board of trustees who like are mad. Jay didn't become the next head coach after his dad, but like Penn state has to be willing to back 110% whomever their head football coach is, And if they don't do that, I think they deserve literally whatever is coming. Uh, I'll give you the last word here on recruiting, on facilities, on supporting James Franklin, whatever that might be, and then we'll call it. Yeah, I just, any, you don't need to be worried about this Penn State
1: recruiting class based on the on field results.
0: And, And based on the fact that, like, you're an adult with bills to pay. Like, don't worry about it.
1: Yeah. Like, it's, I, I, we, I've talked a lot about, this like with uh, a lot of people about the recruiting class in the last couple of days and people being worried about it. I think the big thing to remember, just like a nugget to hold on to when you think about recruiting, most if not all of these kids, with you know a couple exceptions with the Pennsylvania kids, they did not grow up as Penn State fans. They are not watching every single Penn State fan, every single Penn State game, excuse me, and thinking about it and analyzing it the way that we do as fans. They are. Like there's a big difference between going to Penn State to play football and grew up rooting for Penn State and is going there to school and is excited to watch football. They are very very different things. Like we're talking about Drew Aller, kid from Ohio, you know. He absolutely grew up I whether or not he is a full-blown Ohio State fan, I can guarantee you grew up watching Ohio State. We're talking about kids from Florida. They did absolutely did not grow up watching Penn State football. It is a big difference and I, it's something that people I think really overrate is that what the on-field success means for Penn State. Like you mentioned, most of these kids committed after the 2020 season, when it looked like Penn State was just an unmitigated disaster, despite the four game winning streak or five game winning streak to end the season, whatever it was Um, like it there. It is a much different calculus. They care about different things than you and I do than you and I do as fans, and I'm not saying that you know if Penn State was winless right now, yes, there would be ripples and repercussions, but it is not the same calculus, and this perception that one upset loss ruins everything just needs to stop because every team in college football has suffered an embarrassing loss at some point over the last however many years, and it's like recruiting is just a totally. Totally different world that is connected in very different and intricate ways than simply as win loss. And That's the last thing I'll say on that. Yeah, I,
0: I I think that's good. I mean, we've a bit of a longer one, but I think everyone probably understands why this was a bit of a longer one. Uh, but yeah, um, real quick, I will add I,
1: one final yeah. thought though, since we're
0: sure skipping, skipping the
1: last the last uh last bullet point on our on our outline here. It would not at all surprise me, despite how terrible everything looked this week, I would not be surprised in the slightest to see Penn State really give Ohio State a battle next week at N-Columbus. I think for a couple different—one, you have—now you know, now they've actually seen Clifford on the field. They have a better sense of what he can and can't do. I would hope that they'll be able to work and tailor the offense a little bit more to his current situation. And maybe you know— uh, he took some hits, but maybe Clifford's actually a little healthier next week too, because he's further away from the initial injury. Who knows? But I, I would not at all be surprised to see them put up a significant fight in Columbus.
0: I um, would agree, but I've watched Travion Henderson. Uh, Travion Henderson is excellent. You're not wrong. <laughs> that's it for uh, this edition of the podcast. Thank you, everyone. Uh, for listening make sure you go to wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe if you use apple Podcasts, please go and leave us a five star review make sure you're following us on all of our various social media channels uh if penn state wins we're doing a twitter on saturday by some miracle we're doing a twitter spaces after uh that is going to involve me driving to the campus of the ohio state university and having someone get into a fight with me uh if it- you want to please keep reading and supporting the site. Uh, make sure you go and buy some shirts. Do all that stuff that you always hear me say at the end of these podcasts. One last time, thank you very much for listening to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. For Nick Pollock, I'm Bill DeFilippo. Take care, everyone. One game, nine overtimes, and the under still hit.